But bear this in mind as we talked about last week, and as you're finding yourself your way there, it's been about 15 or so years since the Judah population had experienced a revival. We kind of likened it somewhat to the way in which we experienced 9-11 back 2001. Here's where we're at today. And now, despite all that took place, it seems as though the revival was a distant memory. And all the things that God was doing seems to have been forgotten. And meanwhile, there is this growing force of opposition moving in the direction of Judah, kind of like a terrorist gathering. And the people of Judah feel threatened. And Habakkuk has been posing questions to God, hasn't he, in that opening chapter? Questions such as, why? Which appeared not once but twice. And also the question, oh Lord, how long? You ever wrestle with that? When you find yourself beginning to connect the why questions of life with the need to wait in life. When the why and the wait collide, we can feel exhausted in life's journey because we keep waiting and at the same time we keep asking why. Sometimes it seems as though the heavens are silent. Silent when you're dealing with issues that are very personal to you. Is that where you're at this morning, where the why combined with the weight have collided in your heart? That's where Habakkuk's at, and he's got questions. And his questions are not rooted in unbelief. His questions are rooted in belief. Don't be threatened when people ask questions. Try to discern, is it coming from a heart of unbelief or a heart of belief, and work off of that. And now you and I are going to find Habakkuk is going to bring his questions forward. But he's got his starting point, and his starting point is with God. And likewise for you and me, when we've got questions about the unfairness of life, determine who and what is your starting point, and make certain you begin with God, as he does. And we pick it up again now in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? question. Then this very dramatic, certain statement, we shall not die. Notice the we. O Lord, you have ordained them, speaking of the Babylonians, coming their way. You've ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent? When the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, and so he rejoices in his blood. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. 
for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Look at his faith here. He doesn't have answers yet. Not yet. But in verse 1, you and I are told what he's going to do when the heavens seem silent. I will take my stand at my watch post like a soldier, a sentry late at night. I'm going to take my stand at my watch post, station myself on the tower, look out to see what he'll say to me. And what I'll answer concerning my complaint, because he's got some complaints, but he knows who to turn to to get answers. Do you? Let's look to God in prayer. Father, as we're coming into your presence, it seems as though we are exposed to the injustices of life, whether it be at a very personal level, where we work, times where we feel so overlooked and undervalued, in the home, where we've tried to make things work, but things seem to come apart, in the physical medical realm, where we've been following the prescriptions, but it seems as though things aren't getting better, but worse. And the heavens are silent. And we're wrestling, Father. We know you're a just God. But we've got questions in the wait. Because our wait involves our whys. Why is this happening? Father, if that's where we're at this morning, my prayer is that verse by verse, again, we're going to embrace what's here as we follow your verse-by-verse plan for understanding you in this world and apply your truth to our lives. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. Come here to see Jesus. Him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. We were, as a family, coming back from Pennsylvania, where we once lived, to spend a lot of time with Pam's father and mother. Now, you've got to understand something about Pam's father. He looked and he acted, and people viewed it this way. He came across like John Wayne. Big, strong man, big, strong opinions, and you knew where he stood on everything, and we were best of friends. It was late at night, and we came through the door with our children, and there was Charles, and he had on his western, and he loved his westerns. Sat down next to him, and we talked for a little bit. It was late, and he was up in years, and began to fade out of me. Somewhere in the way, in the midst of the movie that he was watching, a western, 
One of the good guys wearing the white hat got shot in the midst of some kind of battle. And the guy's buddy came running up to him and looked down as he saw the blood seeping out of this body. Stood up, looked off into the distance and said, Sometimes it just ain't fair. When all of a sudden I heard Charles stare and he looked at me and said, Yeah. And went back to sleep. Years later, he would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and put his faith in the God who addresses all injustices in this world. Have you? But what do you do when you find your heart beating simultaneously with someone who says, sometimes... It just ain't fair. That's where you're at this morning. I want to draw out three significant features that are found in these verses that I think relate to where you and I are at. The first one's this. When life seems unfair, consider God's nature and our relationship to him. That's your starting point. That's Habakkuk's starting point. He doesn't begin by seeking out a treaty, a truce with the Babylonians that are coming his way. He starts with God. Now, when you are facing a series of injustices in your life, when life seems intensely unfair at work or in the home or in your own personal being, You've got to critically ask yourself, but what truly is my starting point? Where do I begin? Now notice, notice where he begins, and he actually begins, he begins by posing a question, doesn't he? Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We'll just pause right there and wrestle with this. Notice that he describes his God as everlasting, an echo of what Moses would have penned in Psalm 90, verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth. Wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. The injustices you are facing are not everlasting. Don't make the injustices your starting point. Make the just one your starting point. Otherwise, you're going to have a warped view of time. God is eternal. The unfairness of life is temporal. Are you not from everlasting, he poses? Which means then that God is self-existent. He does not have an origin. He has no beginning. He has no end. And within him there is no succession of moments. 
as God revealed to Moses in the wilderness where Moses had to wait, filled with the question of the why. I am who I am. God did not say, I am who I was. He does not say, I was who I will be. He says, I am who I am. He is always present, past, present, future, not merely in time, but throughout all of eternity. Now that is something significant that you've got to process with me. As that little girl comes up to her mommy and says, Mommy, who made me? Been there? Well, God made you, hon. Well, Mom, who made the sky and the trees? God made the sky and the trees. God made everything. And Mom, who made God? As God says to Moses, I am who I am, not I am who I was, or not I was who I am, or will be. And here's the big difference between us and God. Apart from God, we cannot exist. Apart from us, God does exist. And when April 15th approaches each year, you probably put down in your text form something along the lines of how many dependents. But you see, when it comes to this matter of your relationship with God, you are dependent upon God, but God is not dependent upon you. He is the eternal one, And the injustices and the unfairness you're experiencing right now are not. But if you are being overwhelmed with that sense of being overlooked, if you're being overwhelmed by that sense of unfairness, if you're being overwhelmed by a sense of injustice, and you feel paralyzed in life where the weight and the why seems to have found a common meeting ground, determine who and what is your starting point. And get your everlastings worked out. Because he doesn't end there. He does begin there. He goes on to say, oh Lord. So now he connects the idea of his everlasting God, not his everlasting problems, his everlasting God to his Lord. And again, it's oh Lord. And whenever you see the oh, there's this sense of oh. It's almost as if your, your inners are so overwhelmed by your outwards. And you're just trying to make do in the weight as you wrestle with the why. But you see, the Lord carries with the idea of a covenantal relationship he has established with his people. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's the way he relates to you, even in the midst of the unfairness and the uncertainties and the injustices of life. But then he still adds one more. My God. And the word God here is the very same term that was used in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, 
God created the heaven and the earth. And now you look at the unfairness and you consider the injustice and you got this weight coupled with the why. And if this God can create something out of nothing, Genesis 1.1, this God can create something good out of something bad. But you've got to establish your starting point. Okay, now, he's everlasting. The injustices you're experiencing right now are not. It is the old Lord. And you can almost feel the emotions swelling up within him. He's got to exhale. You've got to breathe in the weight, you know, as you ask the why. And so he uses the word Lord, capital L-O-R-D, as should you and as should I, in the midst of the weights and in midst of the whys, you see. And it's covenantal. And then you get to this God and you say, that's the very same word for Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if he can create something out of nothing, he can create something good out of this badness that I'm experiencing right now. He's not done yet. He's still operating off his starting point. He goes on, my holy one. Now, that's going to be interesting because you and I are going to find in just a few seconds, he is using these unholy ones, the Babylonians, to bring a sense of discipline upon Judah. How and why does a holy God use unholy means to accomplish his purposes? But then again, you and I, well, we get ahead of Habakkuk, don't we? And we go to the cross of Jesus Christ. We realize he's using religious unbelievers like the Jewish rulers of that time. He's using secular unbelievers like Herod and Pilate. And he's master planning. And he's using even these so-called unholy ones to achieve his holy purpose. Now, if you are mingling right now with religious and secular unbelief, and there's this sense of the why combined with the weight, and you're grappling with a master plan of life, what's your starting point? And do you realize that a holy God can use unholy people or use their unholy methods as still part of his overall plan for all of humanity, you see? For all things work together for the good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. But not all things which work together for the good feel good. Okay. Starting points. Everlasting. Lord. God. Tied to Genesis 1.1. Holy One. And you say, okay, that's God's nature there, and I've got to begin with God's nature to address the issues of the hour. But he says, you're not finished yet. Notice the double usage of the word my. Did you see it? Oh, Lord, my God. Oh, Lord, in other words, my creator of something out of nothing, therefore capable of creating something good out of something bad. It does not say the God. Man, a religious unbeliever can say that. It says my God. 
He's got a relationship with God through Messiah, who in his case was to come. Does not say the Holy One, does it? Says my Holy One, which is fascinating, you see, because my natural tendency is if I bump into Holy of Holy types, back off of it. I don't feel like I belong. I don't belong in there too. But he says, my Holy One. Peter would say, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. But yet, nonetheless, the Holy One is sent into the world to die for the sinful man. He wants a my experience. Do you have it? Now, once you and I have tied together our starting point attributes with the dual emphasis of the my. Okay. Now we're ready to take it on. And here's your second feature. The number two in life seems unfair. Consider with me God's plan and our questions for him. And man, do we have questions, don't we, in this fallen world? Why did that happen when it happened? Am I, some way, shape, or form, culpable for what happened back then? And am I experiencing now the after effects today? If only I could hit the delete. Read on. It begins with a very powerful statement of certainty. We shall not die. It's bigar, really. I've been at enough funerals. What does he mean? Here's what he means. He knows his Old Testament. And he knows that what God had said, Abraham, was valid then, valid today, valid tomorrow. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I'll give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. And now you've got two everlastings. You've got two eternals. And so what he's saying at this point is that his promised plan that he has established in eternity past through the Israelite people to bring Messiah into this world cannot be altered cannot be abrogated, but is certain. Therefore, now Habakkuk looks at all the uncertainties in the eyes of the people, but he's got certainty in his own heart. He can say it dramatically, we shall not die. And 1948 comes along and Israel regains national status globally after all those years. And as soon as Israel proclaimed its independence, it was attacked by Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia. Roughly a half million Jews in Israel surrounded by 40 million opponents. And from February 24th to July 20th, 1949, several unsuccessful attempts and invasions of Israel occurred and the forces time and again opposed Israel, defeated ceasefire agreements, signed, though no peace agreements. But by this victory at the dawn of the birth, I'd call it a rebirth of Israel. Two-thirds more territory than it was granted by UN Resolution of November 29, 1947. 
And God, in essence, is saying, this is an everlasting thing, you know. Despite what it looks like in the Middle East. And so you process, even on the news of these past days, as a Benjamin Netanyahu warns all his supposed allies, don't by any means stretch the imagination, create what he calls a false symmetry between Israel and her opponents. Now what is Habakkuk doing at this point? After establishing his starting point and reintroducing the Mai, he now moves from God's nature to God's plan. He begins by saying, your plan is for an everlasting kingdom. And three days later, Jesus would validate that very promise. And so what you and I do now is this. Just as Habakkuk looks at the injustices he's experiencing and knows that God is eternal and his injustices are not, God has a plan and the injustices of this world cannot. He claims the promise of God. Do you? Now what you've got to be able to face when life seems so unfair is to look very carefully at the promise of God and how it has direct implications for your life. Dr. Judson was ministering in Burma. At the end of three years, he was asked by skeptics what had he achieved, what evidence there was of success. And he answered, as many and as much as there is a God who fulfills his promises. Hundred churches, thousands of believers, converts later, answered his faith. Now what you and I have got to do in the midst of the unfairness you're facing, make absolutely certain that you are working through the promises of God delivered by the sovereign everlasting God and see how they will minister to your heart in the midst of the injustice and the unfairness when you feel so overlooked, you feel so overwhelmed, you feel so confused, and you're wondering, where's God? And he's there all the time as he was when Jesus was dying on that cross. But now you're wrestling. You're looking at this and you're saying, oh Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. That's just not self-ordination. You, O rock, have established them for a reproof. I realize you're sovereign, they're not. But now here, here's where I'm wrestling. You're holy, they're not. How can you, the holy one, Use unholy ones as your means to accomplish your purpose in our lives, in my life. That's the gist of what he's saying here next. 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you just idly look at traitors and remain silent? You ever been there? When the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he the heavens have uh, been silent to you. I need an answer. I got this wait slash why thing going. Albert Einstein was the featured speaker at a dinner given in his honor at Swarthmore College. When it was time for him to speak, he stood up and told the astonished audience, Ladies and gentlemen, I'm very sorry, but I have nothing to say. 
And he sat down. And then a few seconds later, he stood up again and said, in case I have something to say, I'll come back and say it. And six months later, he wired the president of the college with this message. Now I have something to say. And another dinner was held. And Einstein gave his speech. Sometimes we've got to base our whole approach to the weight-slash-why issue and the silence of the heavens by establishing what God has already said in his word and await the outcome, which is still to come, as you're processing the why-slash-weight of your life. It gets quiet in life. Where are you, God, in this life? Now, it's a question. Remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? It's a question, and it is the question that the believer at this point, not the unbeliever, is asking. Now, be able to distinguish the questions of belief versus the questions of unbelief. If you're working with extended family, and they've got questions. And where is God in the midst of the unfairness of life? Contrast Zechariah versus Mary. Zechariah in his later years with his wife Elizabeth are given this statement from an angel with regard to this one known as John the Baptist that Elizabeth would deliver. Zechariah asked, how should I know this? I am a man, an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. He's a religious leader. But it was the question of unbelief. It's marked by doubt. Show me doubt, and I'll go back to the book of James and point out double-mindedness. His was the question rooted in unbelief. But compare that to Mary, her question of belief. Mary said to the angel, how can this be, speaking of the promise of Messiah through her womb, how can this be since I am a virgin? You see, he lacked certainty. She had certainty. Her question was not the issue of certainty. Hers was simply the mock confusion. She doesn't understand God's methods, God's ways. You can have faith in Messiah, Christ Jesus, and still have questions on the basis of faith, saying, I don't get your ways. I'm not quite seeing what you're doing, why you're doing what you're doing, but I'm going to have to wait for the answer because you've already established faith in God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Douglas had done that. Philip Yancey in his book, Disappointment with God, describes Douglas's troubles. It began a few years back when his wife discovered a lump in her breast. Surgeons removed that breast. Two years later, the cancer had spread to her lungs. Douglas took over many household and parental duties as his wife battled the debilitating effects of chemotherapy, and sometimes she just couldn't hold down her food, lost her hair, tired, vulnerable to fear and depression. 
One night in the midst of this crisis, Douglas was driving down a city street. His wife, 12-year-old daughter, a drunk driver, swerved across the center line, smashed head-on into their car. Douglas's wife, badly shaken but unhurt. His daughter suffered a broken arm and severe facial cuts from windshield glass. Douglas himself received the worst injury, a massive blow to the head. After the accident, Douglas never knew when a headache might strike, but it would be debilitating. He could not work a full day. Sometimes he would become disoriented and forgetful. Worse, his vision was permanently affected. One eye wandered at will, refusing to focus. I called Douglas for an interview. I wanted to talk with him about disappointments and if, in fact, he had experienced disappointment with God. Now, I forced myself to look directly at him as he talked, trying to ignore the distraction of the wandering eye. At last, we finished breakfast. And as I motioned to the waitress for more coffee, I asked, could you tell me about your disappointment? What have you learned that might help someone else going through a difficult time? Douglas was silent for what seemed like a long time. And he stroked his peppery gray beard and gazed off beyond my shoulder fleetingly wondered if I was, if he was having a mental gap until finally he said, to tell you the truth, Philip, I didn't feel any disappointment with God. I was startled. Douglas is searingly honest. He rejects those easy formulas like Quote, turn your scars into stars, unquote. I wait for him to talk further and explain. The reason is this. I learned first through my wife's illness and then through the accident not to confuse God with life. I am no stoic. I am as upset about what happened to me as anyone could be. But I believe God feels the same way about that accident, grieved and angry, and I don't blame God for what happened. And then continued. I have learned to see beyond the physical reality in this world to the spiritual reality. We tend to think life should be fair because God is fair. But God is not life. And if I continue to confuse God with life by continuously expecting good health, for example, good circumstances, then I set myself up for a crashing disappointment. God's existence, even his love for me, does not depend on my good health. And frankly... I've had more time and opportunity to work on my relationship with God during my impairment than before his relationship. As a Habakkuk would say, my God.
my Holy One. Can you? Which leads to this third feature. That thirdly, when life seems unfair, consider with me God's justice and our trust in him. Now you are working off of first things. From God's nature, through God's plan, to God's justice. And you are now wondering, and how will all this work out? So he says in verse 14, You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He's back to the idea of God as creator. He knows if God can create something out of nothing, he can create something good out of something bad. That's the imagery there. But now he casts his eye towards the Babylonians that are coming towards Judah, towards Jerusalem. And now he says he brings, speaking of them, brings all of them up with a hook. Uses the fish imagery out in the sea. God creates humankind like this, the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. Now he looks out, he brings all of them up with a hook, speaking of the Babylonians, drags them out with his net, and prophetically he's describing what historically would take place. The Babylonians would come and they would put fish hooks into the noses and into the jaws of various strategic leaders of the Jewish population and lead them out to the land of Babylon. And they rejoice, these soldiers do. And then he says, look at their worship. They worship their power, their might, their military, their their endeavors. In verse 16, he sacrifices to his net, makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury, his food's rich. Seems as though they've got it going. We don't. You ever felt that way? But now the strategic question. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Is this just going to keep on keeping on endlessly? But you have strategically drawn a line from that last word forever in the question of verse 17 back to the everlasting God of verse 12. You've established God as your starting point as everlasting, not as the injustices that you're experiencing right now. And so even though you've got a why tied to your weight, you know that this is their injustices that they're delivering to your door are not eternal. God is. And you wait for God to intervene. Can you wait in trust? So what does he do? What does he do? Check out chapter 2, verse 1. And I will take my stand. I'm not taking this thing seated. I will take my stand at my watch post like a soldier in the midst of the night watching out for the invading forces. Station myself on the tower. I'm going to do it not only for myself, but for all those around me. I will take my stand. And look out to see what he will say to me. And lo and behold, your jaw drops as does mine. 
because back in chapter 1, verse 3, why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? And now he takes the look and see and brings it to chapter 2, verse 1. Look out to see what he will say to me. I don't have all the answers to life yet. I'll look. I'll see. I'm going to take my stand. And I'm going to wait upon the one I put my faith and trust in. My God. My Holy One. What I'll answer concerning my complaints, I give to him, not to others. As a Charles grunts. When a cowboy says, sometimes it just ain't fair. And he says, yeah. But it ain't fair for the sinless one to hang on a cross for the sinful ones. But God, in his master plan, uses even the injustices and the unfairnesses of life to create a beautiful picture for those who put faith and trust in him. Let him finish the painting. Father, we're praising you and thanking you. You're our God. The injustices of life are not. You are everlasting. The unfairness of life is not. And so, Father, in the midst of the trials we're facing, the challenges we're confronting, the hurt and all the various difficulties that come our way, we're not going to confuse you with life. You're fair, but life isn't. And you gave Jesus to die in our place for our sins. Father, we rely upon the fact that it's relational. And we put our faith and hope in Jesus. And we take our stand. In Jesus' name.